Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. As COVID-19 infections climb, Ottawa has announced an $82 billion emergency response package. Is this the right way forward? And what does it mean for our economy? Daniel Schwannen is the Vice President of Research at the Institute. He joins us from Kitchener, Ontario. And Grant Bishop is an Associate Director at the Institute's Calgary headquarters. We began our conversation by pointing out that the Finance Minister, Bill Morneau, says emergency funding is coming in two to three weeks. Is that soon enough? I think it's uh, the soonest uh, that they can uh, they can realistically uh, expect to get it through. Uh, some of the benefits, for example, uh, a lot of them actually require uh, royal assent. So, so you know, some some uh, legislative changes, um, and that alone will uh, will 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 take some time. Uh, but I think that knowing uh, that it's coming, um, uh, hopefully, will uh, will. Uh, um, you know, encourage uh, pe- encourage people uh, to uh, um, vis-a-vis their finances uh, that they will get some uh, some help in uh, in due course. I would answer that in two ways. I mean, is it is it coming soon enough for households, and is it coming as soon as the government can deliver? Uh, I think you know on, on on the second question first. I mean, the government is being very creative with channels, doing so in real time. I think they are precautious in some ways. I mean, many of these programs are going to be application based, and there is a question of of whether you should just shotgun uh, distribute income in order to get people past the the hump. Certainly, certain commentators like Ken Bosenkuhl have made that argument. Uh, Kevin Milligan uh, has also been a proponent of getting cash out quickly. There is that second question though, is it soon enough for households? And there is a real risk that within that time frame, many households um, who, who lack stable employment or are laid off from their current employment and don't have immediate uh, for income otherwise to draw or, or, or assets to draw upon um, uh, find themselves pressed in meeting their daily needs. I think it also highlights the risk of households having to liquidate assets at this point in time. There could be tremendous wealth destruction if households begin to draw on savings that are housed in, for example, equity instruments that have been in the last weeks uh, massively hit. I haven't even looked at my RRSP for fear. Oh, yeah. There's no point at this point, is there? No. I mean, one thing I'll add, you know, there is, I mean, I think in, in what Daniel said, um, some some good vision of what might also be a solution. If households know that income support is coming, they are able to potentially draw on forms of credit uh, to meet immediate needs. They're confident in doing so. But I would say that points to another potential measure that the federal government could be looking at uh, that could more rapidly be put into action. And that is enabling banks through government backing of lines of credit to extend credit to households in need. Uh, And I can elaborate a bit on how that might work. Some commentators have flagged that as a potential route to go. I think that that's already happening. So I think the banks have indicated uh, that they can provide uh, for people in 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 dire circumstances, uh, you know, for 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 a period of time, some some kind of liquidity there. 
uh, while awaiting some help. So uh, completely concur with Grant there. So there, there, there are mechanisms. So it sounds like we can't dismiss that there is definitely a psychological component to this that must be addressed. Most certainly, Michael. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, it's both psychological and practical. None of us have a good line of sight on how long uh, this could persist, um, I, I think. And certainly policymakers, government leaders are preparing us for a, a long and sustained war against COVID-19 that will require uh, real sacrifice and, and uh, real, real policy measures, potentially um, a, a substantial form of redistribution. Those households that are most exposed to COVID-19, that probably work in... Um, in sectors, in occupations that, that depend on direct human-to-human -human interactions are also uh, those who uh, are now most at risk of loss of income. Um, and, and there is a risk here of individuals continuing to participate and, and not socially distance if they don't have income support. A big question for government policymakers is how to support those individuals for their welfare and also to ensure compliance with public health measures and uh, stem the spread of this disease. Well, there is a $5 billion emergency support benefit built into this $82 billion response package that's specifically for those not eligible for EI yes. and are facing unemployment. We, we have to deal with something that I don't think we needed to deal with during the SARS epidemic, and that is the gig economy. Does this help those who are increasingly a big part of our economy? From the start that issue was brought up. Uh, people who basically are not covered or adequately covered uh, by the existing uh, EI program, uh, and yet, you know, have to stay at home, take care of the kids, uh, can't earn, uh, uh, that are confined at home, uh, can't earn income. So uh, that's, that's novel, um, as far as I can tell, and it does reflect uh, uh, the the reality of our of our economy today, but uh, a lot of commentators were uh, asking for that, worried about uh, about those people, and I think uh, at least uh, as the first installment here, um, uh, that's um, uh, that that's novel and, and a major uh, uh, positive innovation in this uh, in this context. It will help. This this crisis is certainly magnified for its impact on households by that size of the gig economy. StatsCan uh, had a report out in December that measured the, the size in 2016 using administrative data of the gig economy at 8% of employment. Um, that was compared to, in 2005, around 5% of employment. And anecdotally, you, you would certain, it's hard to measure the gig economy on a month-to-month -month basis, but... Anecdotally, we certainly see places where it has advanced. We're aware that much labor has become increasingly contractual outside of formal employment, even when it's, it's with a traditional employer. 
you know, those those employees are or those workers are much more exposed to the risk of layoffs um, and, and the risk of unemployment, not having income. So in addition to the five million emergency support benefit, there is also a $10 billion emergency care benefit. That's what, $900 biweekly for 15 weeks. And that is is not just for EI, but for those who don't get paid sick leave. I suppose this comes back full circle, not just to the gig economy, but to the service economy. Yes, yes, I suppose that uh, that's true. Although uh, uh, a lot of uh, the benefits, uh, and Grant will correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is also for people who uh, have to stay at home and take care of, uh, of the children uh, who are confined at home and not able to be at school. But indeed, indeed, that uh, that is correct. Uh, a, a large part of the lower wage, uh, people who do have jobs and, and even have access to EI, but don't really uh, have um, uh, extensive uh, or adequate, if that's the right word, in, in, in those circumstances, at least, uh, benefits. And so, uh, you know, I think we're discovering, uh, frankly, through this crisis, some of the uh, um, practical aspect of those vulnerabilities. And, and uh, that's what the government is, uh, is trying to uh, um, to address here. I mean, this is a human crisis in all its forms. Um, I mean, the, the health nature of of this crisis is, of course, uh, the most the most pertinent, and it, it's going to require us pull together and our health system uh, be braced for the wave of sick individuals who will be coming. The the caregiver benefit is essential to propping up family and and um, friend supports for those who are who are ill and recognizes that a large portion of our labor force is potentially going to be sidelined by sickness directly. And, and also, of course, I mean, we're with with the closure of schools and measures taken to stem the spread of, of this virus, um, there is, is going to be sidelining of our labor force in other ways, diversion of, of folks to care. Um, you know, many norms are changing in real time, uh, certainly as this uh, crisis persists over the coming months. I think you will see a continuing evolution of how we work and live. Um, and, and the norms around those, um, those aspects of daily life. You know, this all does call, as, as we move forward, for social cohesion as, as, um, as a base way of operating. And I think the government is very conscious of that in how it is developing and extending income supports to ensure social stability and a confidence in our civic institutions. But are you confident long-term that we, through the revealing that the gig economy emperor has no clothes, will make changes to our social structure such that these people don't slip through the cracks? It's possible, you know. I don't think that the uh, certainly we will learn those those lessons, Michael. I'm 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 convinced, and already uh, in uh, in in policy circles and 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 people advising the government, uh, there were talks of strengthening uh, and advice about strengthening uh, the various uh, um, you know so, social programs and even 
to some extent, all obligations uh, pertaining to uh, uh, or that employers may have vis-a-vis -vis those, uh, uh, those workers. One of the things, and I think that will accelerate that discussion. There's, there's absolutely no doubt. No doubt. One of the things, though, that um, we need to point out is that a lot of, uh, of that labor force is in the gig economy, not by choice. A lot of it is by choice, you know, um, uh, whether it's students or, or, or second um, earners in the household, uh, people who need time uh, for other reasons, uh, older, the, the, the older workforce. So the, the trick going forward, we're not, uh, that was your question, I think, is uh, once we're past this, uh, this, uh, this crisis, uh, will be to devise programs that allow uh, that flexibility uh, but also provide the the adequate um, safety net when 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 things go wrong. And I would also add that um, there are measures pertaining pertaining to uh, employers. The self-employed uh, are covered by these measures, uh, which is also a reflection of the the modern economy. And there's a focus on small businesses, uh, keeping them afloat, which I think will will help um, uh, keeping people employed, frankly, although the Canadian help here, uh, subsidies, uh, you know, uh, wage subsidies, for example, being offered uh, nowhere near, I think, the level of help that uh, European businesses are getting. So maybe that'll be the next wave for us. What is a more reasonable level? <laughs> it's a good question. France has uh, guaranteed that no business would go under, and I don't think we can at all it's an interesting approach. I would say it's the other extreme. Um, and when we're providing some modest wage subsidies so that people can keep their uh, their uh, their their employees. So there's uh, there are these two extreme uh, approaches. But uh, the, the basic story is that part of the answer there, surely, and, and the government recognizes this uh, or governments all over the world is to make sure that the employers themselves uh, do not face uh, such a threat that they will en masse, if you will, uh, lay off people. You know, we've long been talking about buttressing our income security system, and there was a great amount of thought about how we might do so in the wake of the last crisis, that in 2008, 2009, driven by problems in the U.S. and global credit um, system. You know, this, this crisis is different in all probability, deeper, and we are more vulnerable with the structure of employment, of employment than we uh, were in, in that episode uh, 10 years more ago. You know, going forward, I think through this crisis, our economy is going to be irrevocably transformed. Certainly there is the hypothesis that we will come out of this like a V. I think as we learn more about the spread of the disease and the shutdown that will be required, it becomes less likely that that uh, V is going to be a quick rebound, more likely, more protracted. Uh, the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, uh, alluded to um, the hardship to come as akin in this province uh, to what was experienced during the Great Depression and uh, has prepared certainly the province, I think, for the extraordinary measures that provincial and the federal government will take to support industry and workers. 
And, and through that process, through these next months, I, I believe our perception of what government does and the essential role it plays in these shocks that are outside of anyone's control will also change. Um, to that end, I mean, we are going to need to re-examine our systems for social insurance and income support. Um, that is what the federal government is, is trying to do in real time. Um, one thing I would say, and I think, you know, much of the opinion is in agreement that they will uh, be forgiven by too, doing too much in the short term in order to address household need and stem the tide of this virus uh, at the expense of um, doing too much. Uh, there, there is great reason to move quickly and, um, you know, with rapid action to support households. That, and that seems to be what the federal government is trying to do uh, in coordination with the provinces. Let me ask you a question then that sort of feels like how long is a piece of string? The package is 3% of GDP, $27 billion in direct support, $55 billion to help business liquidity through tax deferrals. Is that the right ratio? Is that the right percentage? Do we have a sense as to whether or not we are, in fact, reacting appropriately at this point with the right dollars? It's not out of line, uh, Michael, at all with what's being mooted uh, by other um, G7 and other advanced economies. Um, and I suspect uh, that... Uh, knowing that they've they've all consulted, um, that uh, there's there's that kind of uh, assessment that right now as a first wave, uh, it's um, uh, it's 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 enough. You have to remember also that there's there's more firepower there uh, than those numbers indicate. There, are, you know, there are the the lines of credit are are open. Uh, the government is uh, governments are intervening in financial markets. Make sure that uh, liquidities to businesses are uh, are appropriate. Well, actually, let me ask you about that specifically because we know the Americans cut interest rates to zero percent. What are the implications for Canada? We we have a we have a couple more arrows in our quiver, as it were. The Americans have already fired off all theirs. Yeah, well, that's 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 true. Uh, if the if you're considering, however, that uh, you know, interest rates uh, and overnight rates are uh, one of the arrows. Um, but as we saw in the last recession, for example, there are many unconventional ways by which uh, by which governments can uh, uh, can intervene in uh, in financial markets. And lower interest rates are not uh, <clears throat> not simply uh, one of them. I mean, we saw our own regulator. Uh, uh, basically, tell the the, the large, uh, you know, systematically important banks that their uh, their prudential ratio, if you like, was was uh, was lowered, so they could they could lend more as a percent of their of their of their capital. So that was one restriction that's been lifted on on lending, for example. So I'm uh, 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 some people are even mooting some some uh, system eventually down the road of uh, you know direct deposits. Uh, at the central bank uh, uh, on the part of individual Canadians. So I think um, there, there are many more um, bullets that can be fired, uh, arrows that can be shot, uh, other than uh, lowering interest rates. 
as Daniel said, this is the first wave. And how much it is matters perhaps less than even where it goes. Um, you know, the, the federal government is spending $27 billion in direct support that is targeted through programs that they have uh, already stood up and, and can fairly rapidly modify. Uh, the $55 billion uh, is, is not cash out the door, uh, but it is liquidity support in the near term. You know, I expect more to come, and this this crisis will be protracted. Um, this is the first real week of shutdown that we began to ease into last week. the The downturn will only get deeper from here. The need for support will only become uh, more exaggerated. The federal government does have, I mean, thanks to Canada's relatively solid fiscal position, good room to um, to extend support to households. Uh, and I would expect as the impacts on the economy become um, more clear, uh, we adjust to the reality that we're going to be living through this to some time, through for some time, and governments uh, begin to think through all of the mechanics, we will see more specific targeted programs to help households and businesses through this. Um, but this is, as Daniel said, a start. The Prime Minister said, if we could find a way to sit down at a desk and write checks today, we would. This is the fastest way we can determine how to get money out to people. With that in mind, Donald Trump is reportedly giving every American $2,000. So I asked my 13-year-old daughter what she would do if Mr. Trudeau did the same thing. Spend it or save it? She said she'd save it. And frankly, so would I. And maybe that speaks to my own personal financial situation. You could argue it might be my, my white privilege that gives me the ability to be in the position I'm in right now. And, and that maybe I don't have the, the, the right mindset. So help me understand this. What's the point of cutting citizens' checks if they're not going to spend them? Or are they? Oh, uh, that, that, that's a very interesting question. But you have to remember that right now, we, if, if, if I can be so bold, people are being told not to spend, not to spend in restaurants, not to spend uh, on travel. Right. Uh, you know, some factories are shutting down. And what we want, I think here, uh, saving it for for future consumption is perfect to some extent. Spending it on uh, necessities, uh, and we've we've heard a lot about uh, keeping supply chains open uh, uh, open for for providing those necessities, including of course healthcare, uh, food, fuel, so on. Uh, I think is what we're looking at. So. Uh, I'm perfectly happy with the view that what this does is maintain confidence in the future, maintain uh, purchasing power for those who need it for those basics, necessities, rent, and so on, and uh, and that deferred consumption on uh, anything that's superfluous uh, in that macro sense makes sense to me. This is a... Uh, proposal that has been uh, floating around as well. Uh, Ken Bosenkool and, and Kevin Milligan, um, economists, are, are, are both both supportive of this. Have argued the, the so-called Ralph Bucks style proposal of mailing out the checks. 
you know, there, there are concerns with that proposal, just as you've outlined. I mean, inherent in the prime minister's comment is an admission of the government inability to do that quickly, to not to, to have lack to lack the institutional machinery to quickly print and deliver the checks or even do direct deposits. But second, you know, this is not targeted. And, and as Daniel said, you know, the the purpose is not to prop up consumption. It is to address those households with liquidity constraints. And therefore, mailing out checks to everyone uh, is, a, is a highly shotgun way of getting at those households that don't have immediate ability to meet financial need. And it's where, you know, this, this proposal is being floated as well of something like government-backed lines of credit that would be administered through banks and, and be backed like CH, CMHC mortgages so that banks didn't face the risk of lending. That is, government would say uh, each household, and perhaps dependent on household size, would get between $1,000 to $2,000 per month on which they could draw at some borrowing rate, say, set at the Government of Canada, five-year borrowing rate, and having some five-year payback period on them. That banks could snap into place quickly and would be a targeted way of addressing households with true liquidity constraints. But does that just kick the can down the road? I've got Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae screaming in the back of my head. Uh, are, Are we putting us on a longer term, weaker footing by having the government back loans for people who clearly are high risk? I mean, here governments are either going to back loans or they're going to give income directly, right? Um, the the idea of backing specific loans for those individuals who immediately need it, sort of like student loans, uh, would be that you can target it effectively as opposed to shotgun distribute the checks. Either way, our economy and, and those most vulnerable in it face immediate hardship. And again, I'll highlight the huge risks for long-term household welfare if they are not backstopped with credits. Credit. If households have to liquidate assets, particularly equities, they are doing so at uh, abnormally and and inefficiently low prices. Right. Um, We want households to hold on to their assets. We don't want them spending them in the current setting if they don't have to. Let's talk about extending the tax filing deadline to June 1st. What does that do? Well, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a little, <laughs> it's a little uh, relief of, of something that stresses people out uh, a lot. And, uh, but I just wanted to say, if, the, if you owe money, uh, it will stress you out. But uh, as the uh, government pointed out, very rightly, if you are owed money, send it in. So that's uh, 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 in, in general. And I think that for, for, for businesses, uh, for the self-employed, uh, uh, that kind of relief uh, uh, is, uh, is, is very important and provides the kind of uh, uh, um, uh, liquidity support, uh, cash flow support that uh, Grant mentioned. So that's a short-term solution because all we're doing is is deferring tax payments that would be due today, basically, through uh, September to the end of August. The bill will still come due. It's just a matter of the cash you currently have, where you would deploy it. 
Yeah, and uh, the bill will come due, but without interest. So uh, it it it's a little bit of a uh, of a uh, reprieve. Uh, that that's all it is. But that that matters. That can matter to a lot of people. And, and I'll add that this is effective management of expectations. I mean, it, it is a it is an immediate measure that the federal government has a a lever on, and it's a good change to make. It allows those households that do owe some amount at tax time to know that they can spend it and won't be on the hook um, until that that later date. Um, and and I expect government is going to be rapidly putting in other programs to target support before that date, anticipating that this is going to be a long lasting. A set of circumstances. And also one of those more longer tail solutions to this problem, it seems, the GST credits uh, for low-income Canadians. Uh, is that going to help people from falling through the cracks? Uh, it seems like something that wouldn't have an immediate benefit. Like many of many measures uh, announced, uh, it I would say it all adds up, uh, Michael. Uh, uh, on its own, uh, it may not seem uh, like a like a major relief, but knowing that it will come uh, is uh, at, you know there's a, there's a lot of smaller measures. I mean we talked about some of the big ones, uh, but together uh, they do address very specific circumstances. And I, I would say that for a number of households that of course are eligible for these credits, knowing that it's coming might make a difference. As with all the measures, the federal government is thinking through its toolkit to identify how to get funds to households that will need it most. And, and the GST refund is a, is a good targeted way of funneling money to uh, th those households that are at risk. It's, it's effectively uh, directed to lower income Households. Um, consequently, I mean, that's where you want to uh, focus your efforts on those households that are going to be liquidity constrained. Once again, the federal government is looking through all of the measures that it has in place and first thinking through how it can make tweaks to them to better deliver income. Um, you know, they, they in Ottawa are working in real time. It is very impressive. Um, and, and a testament to the diligence of those in our public service and those in uh, political office and their staff that they have pulled together to develop this package so rapidly, uh, communicate it very effectively, um, and and set the uh, set the course for the additional things that they are going to need to do. Um, you know, th there is a message of calm and competence coming from our governments. That's so important at this time to manage public confidence in our uh, civic institutions. Um, that we are at war against uh, a virus and we need to think as a society as if we were. So at the end of this conversation, I think regardless as to whether one feels that this $82 billion emergency response package is enough or that it's deployed effectively, what I'm learning here is that this isn't the end of it. There is going to have to be more coming out of Ottawa to address this as the crisis continues. That's correct. And I think that when we compare the measures that we're taking uh, very appropriately uh, to shore up uh, confidence, uh, to, 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 to tide people, bridge people over uh, 
this crisis if they are experiencing, like many Canadians, uh, a loss of income and if they don't have any backup support. Uh, I think that's appropriate. Uh, possibly more will come uh, to help uh, employers um, you know, help stave off layoffs, frankly, uh, more, more, more directly. And I say that because that's where a lot of other countries seem to be heading in terms of their additional measures uh, at the moment. Michael, this, this will impact our economy in an unprecedented way. Um, you know, the, the level of global integration with which we lived ha, live ha, has rapidly ground to an effective halt, at least within the mobility of people. Um, and, and certainly there are other supply side shocks that have come and are coming to our own economy as um, the workforce is diverted from being able to participate in production. That has implications for domestic demand. Uh, certainly many sectors have immediately been shut down by the public health measures that have under, been undertaken. Our export demand uh, is suffering and will continue to suffer for some time, um, particularly within uh, the commodities we ship, but likely as well um, you know, through the supply chains that will be impaired. And this will have financial consequences for households, for governments. It will require innovation on the monetary policy front as well. But th this is a an economy-wide shock, and you can think of immediate downdrafts to sectors like the retail trade sector, accommodation and food services, oil and gas. And, and just there, we are talking uh, upwards of 15% of the economy. You can envision across 60% or more of the economy direct effects um, to, to supply and demand. And that will have knock-on effects across the entire economy. I mean, this, this is an economy-transforming event across the world, and Canadian policymakers are, are going to continue to need to be innovative and uh, create new mechanisms to address the problems that arise for households and firms. They have done so in a commendable way in the near term. They will need to do even more in the coming weeks and months. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Please stay clean. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Stay safe. COVID-19 hasn't kept the C.D. Howe Institute from its mandate. On Tuesday, March 24th, David Longworth will host a members-only briefing call on the era of digital financial innovation, lessons from economic history on regulation. On Thursday, the 26th, C.D. Howe President and CEO Bill Robinson will host an Ask Me Anything webinar about the Canadian government's responses to COVID-19. For details, visit cdhow.org. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.